Welcome to Foolish Voices, a Company of Fools podcast. Company of Fools is a professional theater company based in Sun Valley, Idaho, and is a proud part of the Sun Valley Museum of Art. More information can be found online at svmoa.org. Welcome to Foolish Voices. I'm Scott Palmer, Producing Artistic Director of Company of Fools. And on this show, we talk to a wide range of theater artists, both here in Sun Valley and all across the world, about how the current global health crisis is impacting their work, about their creative lives, and about their hopes for the future of our art form. Please consider supporting Company of Fools by making a donation in any amount via our podcast platform or online at svmoa.org. In this episode, we are talking to one of my favorite people on the planet, the living hairdo, Andrew Beck. Andrew holds a Master of Fine Arts in Acting from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln and a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Oregon. Andrew is a five-year member of Bag and Baggage's resident acting company, having appeared in As You Like It, Blight Spirit, Spinning Into Butter, Our Country's Good, Dial M for Murder, Death Trap, A Clockwork Orange, among many more. Andrew has also performed with Oregon Contemporary Theater in The Great Gatsby and in Miss Bennett, Christmas at Pemberley, and with The Great American Melodrama and Vaudeville, Willamette Stage Company, Nebraska Repertory Theater, and the Ludlow Festival. Andrew is currently a member of No Filter Improv and teaches acting at Oregon State University. Hey, Andrew Beck, welcome to Foolish Voices, you weirdo. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. That's the longest stream of nice things you've ever said. So uh, it's true. It's funny because I it's literally the bio you sent me. So I just read oh, yeah. nice words that you wrote about yourself. So <laughs> don't, yeah, don't let it go sh- to your head. Yeah, that was a short one. <laughs> exactly. I had to edit it way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how are you? Are you healthy, safe? Well, I, I am. Yeah, I I am. I I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, you know, I have a, uh, you know, as you know, I have a weird relationship just because this whole silly business really kind of started while we were together while I was in Idaho uh, teaching the improv intensive. Yeah, I'm just, t- will you just explain to people like how your existence in the world caused the global pandemic? Is that, <laughs> is that basically what we're assuming happened? Yeah. So being, uh, as they call me now, COVID Andrew. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so I was booked. I, I It was almost a year ago. Uh, you you said, hey, you want to come out here and teach improv? And, and we were like, okay. And we finally figured a date. And it was March. And I think I came out on March 10th. And for the workshop, that was going to be like the 12th through the 15th. And that was basically as America kind of was like, and everything's over. <laughs> and and I, re- I recall the hot spots being there was New York, and then the first hot spot on the West Coast really was Seattle. So I was super excited on May 10th to hop or March 10th to hop on a plane that connected to Seattle. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we 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 don't refer to you as COVID Andrew. We refer to you as Patient Zero. Yeah, in the Valley. I, I appreciate <laughs> you keeping you know my identity. Uh, yes, Andrew Beck, Patient Zero. Patient. Uh, so yeah, you so you arrived here. We put you up in the Haley House. You yeah. and I had drinks multiple times, 
And True. then like literally the last day you were here doing the improv workshop with this really great group of yeah. locals, fantastic young and old and talented and not. I mean, the whole group of them were, <laughs> they were a great crowd. Yeah. Uh, on the last day you were here, our first case appeared in right. Lane County and it appeared in Sun Valley. Yep. Yeah, it was, it was just the weird, I remember what we had, we were sold out for the workshop, I think, and we had extended it and it was like 17 or 18 people signed yep. up. And then the first day it was, I think 15 people showed up. And then the second day it was seven, I think. Yes. Because <laughs> people were sort of like, oh, this, now this is a thing. Now, now this is a thing. But uh, it was great uh, what we did do, and I had a great time, and hopefully once the world returns, I get a chance to do it with all the people who uh, dropped out. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. I mean, we didn't return their money, but, uh, no, you know, so no. it was it was basically like they were there. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was, it, it's so, it's so bizarre. I mean, I, it's, I was saying this to my husband, Brian, a couple of days ago that, Although I have developed many memories of the global pandemic, most of my memories are tied inextricably to Andrew Beck. Yeah. Which feels, <laughs> feels yeah. somehow perfectly appropriate. <laughs> I'm not, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. That's, that basically sums up however many seven or eight years we've known each other. It's yeah. Straight downhill. One constant global crisis <laughs> after another. Um, so, and you you are currently, I mean, you live outside of Corvallis, Oregon. Corvallis yep. is the hometown of Oregon State University. Um, and are you, are you basically sheltered in place? Yeah, we basically, so I came back here on March 15th. And then my wife's contract, she was performing at uh, the Great American Melodrama in Vaudeville. And then she was directing the next Vaudeville that she wrote. And we both got back actually the same day on March 15th. And from that point on, it basically been sheltered in place. Um, and Oregon's kind of a weird situation because we were ahead of the curve. But weirdly, it's taking us longer to get to a position where it looks like we're going to be able to call the shelter in place. Because um, our, our actual um, counts of COVID have been fairly low, but um, but that's fine because I'm stuck at home with my wife for probably the longest stretch of our, our married life because she's usually on contracts or I'm usually in the car driving somewhere to do a show. So yeah, so your your wife is named is Katie Beck. She is yes. lovely and incredibly intelligent, except for the fact that she married you. Yes, really, really talented uh, artist, and she. I mean, she really spends a lot of time traveling. She travels all over the country, really doing yeah. contract acting gigs, right? Yeah, yeah, she, um, yeah, she, she's usually, I mean, she goes everywhere, but she's usually kind of on the I-5 corridor. She kind of runs that. So she works at the Oregon Cabaret Theater, uh, San Luis Obispo Rep. She's worked at PCPA and Santa Maria, um, uh, Great American Melodrama. And then she's worked at the Contemporary Theater. Um, yeah, so she just kind of runs up and down the corridor. So she's probably gone half of the year. Um, so we, I mean, our running joke is it's like, we probably have had it because she worked at the Melodrama, which is basically in an old Rexall uh, um, pharmacy. So there's no <laughs> vacation and there's 
it's always sold out and there's 250 people in this tiny room because it's the only actual functioning business in beautiful Oceano, California. Will you uh, say that word again for me, Oceano? Oceano, yes. I think you're making that up. I know. it's uh, <laughs> Well, if you ask my father after all this time, he still says Oceana. Uh-huh. Is a that's a different place, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, I think that's a different thing. Yeah, but it, it's funny. I always my story. I went right from graduate school to this place, and I drove eighteen hours from Nebraska, or no, thirty hours from Nebraska, and I got there, and it was literally. I thought I had made a mistake because I thought I had gone to a ghost town with one functioning, one functioning business in it, and it was just a little blue building at this time with only closed shops on Highway 1 all the way around it, because it's about three miles south of Pismo Beach. And right. so, which is where all the touristy stuff is. But no, it's a theater. It's been there for 40 some odd years. And so that's where Katie and I met. And so she goes and she works back there. And when you work there, you it's one of those, it's a dinner theater. So you you perform, you work the bar. It's something I always say, every new actor should work there for a year because you get your stamina up. You get to deal with people. Uh, you get to, you know, make sure your voice can stack up for uh, talk for three hours straight. But, but basically, she was constantly around 1,500 tourists a week for eight weeks. And then she drove home in the midst of a pandemic where we didn't know who had it. And then I was flying home through the Seattle airport and then the Portland airport. So we're like, well, we probably have it. But we don't know. So yeah, so it's uh, patient zero is probably an app name for both of us. <laughs> patient zero and zero point five or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. Um, so I, you and I have had this conversation. <clears throat> I can't recall how many times. Probably dozens yeah. of times. Although usually I just stop listening when you talk. So yeah. maybe I maybe this is why I don't really remember this information. <laughs> what is the great American melodrama and vaudeville? I understand that it is a theater company, but mm-hmm. but what what is it about that organization that is different from most other theater companies? Sure. Well, sure, 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 sure. Yeah, I get you. Uh, the number one thing I can say is it is a for profit theater that makes money. There you go. Good job, them. That's it. Uh, they. Um, it's a year-round theater. They do seven shows a year. They perform uh, six to seven times a week. Uh, they do a Christmas show where they perform, I think, over 60 times in six weeks, and they're all sold out. Uh, it's in the middle of nowhere. They do, I mean, it was set up as a, as a melodrama. It's been around for almost 45 years now. And so it used to be the, you, you must pay the rent. I can't pay the rent. You must pay the rent. I can't pay the rent. Right. Rent, right it was that and it's sort of become um where they do every summer they do a classic uh melodrama but a lot of it is more contemporary comedies and a lot of musical comedies and it's basically its niche is it does theater for people who don't go to theater mm. and um so it is always it's family friendly uh it's about basically their goal is to you to have a good time for two and a half hours. So they do a show that's two acts. Usually each act is about 45 minutes. And then after every show is a totally unrelated vaudeville. And for people who aren't familiar with vaudeville, it's basically like Saturday Night Live with songs and dances and sketches and one-liners and who's who's on first and, you know, 
Sometimes they do like the cheerleader sketch from all sorts of things. But that's kind of where the sweet spot is as an actor because we can write those. Like I've written and directed them and Katie's written and directed them. And that's where you sneak in the art part. Right. Sneak in that progressive message where all the, because we always think of California as super progressive, but where the, the um, theater is located is actually Republican. Mm-hmm. And also the owners are from Texas and super Republican. Um, and so you kind of sneak in all these little... <laughs> little lefty progressive... Yeah. My, yeah. my favorite story about it is one time I told a joke uh, for Christmas where it was Christmas letters. And, I was, and the joke was, all I want is a big white house at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And this was in 2008. And the first time I did it, it I said, um, John McCain. And they were like, yeah, yeah. They didn't laugh. And I was like, oh, okay. So then I was like, how about Hillary Clinton? And they were like, <laughs> And then I was like, how about Arnold Schwarzenegger? And they were like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Got it. So that so, gives you a perfect picture of the demographic of your audiences. Yeah. Right. So... But, yeah. And you and I mean it sounds super fun. I mean I, I have actually yeah. listened to stories that you've told me about it, and both you and Katie speak very highly of your time there. Um, yeah. But you, I mean, you sort of have this day job where you're a financial advisor, but you are also uh, an acting teacher at Oregon State University, and you continue even after my departure as artistic director <laughs> at Bag and Baggage to drive approximately two hours one direction to mm-hmm. go and rehearse and perform for Bag and Baggage Productions. Is that, yes. is that all accurate? That's all 100% still true and just as insane as it sounds someone else saying it, yes. <laughs> Does it make it sound any crazier when I say it to you like that? Or, or are yeah. you like, oh God, I gotta, I gotta get my life together? <laughs> yeah, well, well what's, what's great about that schedule is you don't have time to notice all the failures in your life because you're... <laughs> so, um, no, it, I mean, what's been funny about this is because I've still been teaching via Zoom, which is insane. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you all about teaching acting via yeah. Zoom. We will talk about that in a moment. Yeah, and, and so really what I've lost is the bag and baggage part. And even then, I'm still doing things. I was supposed to be directing. Uh, actually, it was supposed to be uh, our second weekend this, this week. Um, and uh, I was supposed to be directing that. I was actually, when I got home from uh, Idaho, the next day I was going to start, um, oh, well, I was going to go to Las Vegas, which also didn't happen, right. and come back and, and, and teach. Uh, but what's one of the interesting things is I just got so used to driving for three or four hours a day. It's amazing how much time I have, even though really I still have two jobs. And, um, and how much of my life in the car was like stress about getting to the next thing. Mm -hmm. Interesting kind of recalibrating that. Uh, I really, but I will say I really miss it. I mean, uh, you kind of, I've talked to Katie about it. You kind of do the other two things so you can do the bag and baggage portion or, or the Oregon Contemporary Theater portion. Um, so yeah, so I, I'm ready for it to be back, but yeah, it's the, the lack of stress is nice. I will say that. 
for a, for a little break. Although yeah, I'm- for a little break. Although you are you are a human being that does sort of thrive and and you you perform well under pressure, Andrew. So, yeah. Yeah. So well, and and I will going back to the melodrama thing. I've always appreciated getting done with a performance and feeling like you've run a marathon. Mm-hmm. And that and that that's truly what I miss is is like that exhaustion from doing something that you hope made somebody's life different or better or you know at least made them laugh at me. <laughs> right, right. People always laugh at you, Andrew, whether yeah. you intend them to or not. I know uh, it's my <clears throat> it's my dumb floppy head. It is your dumb floppy head. It's absolutely <laughs> true. So one of the things I can recall talking to you about when you were here right before you right before the pandemic dropped and you had to yeah. go back home um, was this was the fact that you were teaching you're teaching acting at Oregon State University in the theater yeah. the theater department there um, and you were you were teaching a styles class. And you got you got notified that you were going to have to do those final exams or those final projects on Zoom. Is that right? Well, I was teaching. I was finishing up. I was going back on Monday to teach the final for an acting two class. And and that was the last thing they allowed me to do in person on campus. And I had to ask the dean to be able to do that. Because that whole week, every day I'd gotten between two and three emails from the associate dean or the dean saying, this is the update, this is the update. And they finally said, we're doing everything online, except if you get a specific um, exemption. And so they only let me do it. And the, our room, as you know, is the lab theater, which is about a 100-seat black box theater. And the only way they would allow me to do the final on campus, I promised to sit in the back row of the theater and have the students come in because they were doing scenes two at a time. And the second group could not come in until the first group was gone. Right. And, and so, so that, that, that went. And then, um, and then this term has been teaching acting styles a hundred percent online how 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 how? yeah so (laughs) i I don't understand (laughs) i I don't either so what was weird about it to me is my brain said oh this is easy (laughs) that was my first response i'll just be like okay i'll just do um because i'm teaching basically greek and then i'm teaching restoration uh moliere Georgian, and then the final section is Shakespeare. And then we do a part on isms right at the end. Um, And for some reason, the Greek part, I was like, easy. I'll just, easy. Because I I just said, okay, so what we'll do is we'll basically do a week's worth of um, kind of one, me doing a lecture about the history of Greek, getting in touch with the culture, and then also the next one would basically be how that culture views the world, which is taken from the Robert Barton's book, uh, Acting uh, Styles for Actors. Oh, Bob. Yeah. And, uh, but it, it's a good book. It and, is a good book. Yeah. And uh, so I do that the first week and then I sign their monologues. And then the weird part is the second week where we're actually moving, which is hilarious because 
it's me showing them, okay, this is the size we're working on. And I show them something and then I have to run up and stick my face. There's 15 people in the class. <laughs> sort of look at, at the tiny these... little frames. Yeah. <laughs> and be like, good, good, good. No, good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so number four, number four. Yeah. You're, I don't know your name, kid, but <laughs> you're doing it wrong. Yeah, back of the line. Um, <laughs> sorry, these are the people who made it to next class. Right. Um, but uh, so that, you know, it, it's been interesting. Um, I'm very lucky in that everyone in the class has had at least one, if not two or three classes with me. And so they're, they're good. That's good. So you're familiar with that. I mean, it's one of the things that, you know, that I, I would worry about, like, you know, yeah. trying to teach a styles class online, <clears throat> that, I mean, that is, it's so so much about being co-present in the room and, mm -hmm. you know, you being able to be there and you're a very good styles actor, um, yeah. you know, being able to show and, and give, you know, minute feedback and all of that kind of stuff. It, it strikes me that that particular skill set of, of styles acting would be excruciatingly difficult to do online if you weren't, mm -hmm kind of familiar with the performers and knew their and knew who they were, right? Right. Yeah. It, it, I I was actually thinking this has to be done before fall term because I could not imagine working with people who haven't kind of bought in to the whole acting process. Right. You know, I was thinking about all the things we do in an acting one class. And of course the things I ask for in a style class are totally bigger and more and more quote unquote, awkward and weird and unusual, but they, everyone's bought in. They've taken, this is the third class for a lot of them this term or this, this year. Um, but I could, but they all have a general trust that I know what I'm doing for better or worse. Idiots. Yeah. My best <laughs> acting ever. Um, but so, so it, I, I don't, you know, so what I've really learned is Teaching acting is about building trust and then having your students accept your big asks, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and, and, and it's interesting. And I was talking to Katie about it today, and I, I said the difficulty is it is easy to celebrate successes via Zoom, I've, I've found. Hmm. It's it's much harder to give individual, not pointed feedback, simply because you, you don't you don't have the follow up. You know, you don't like you were saying. You don't have that tactile how the person actually took it. You just have this weird two D image of their face and how you said it, and and so that's what I really. It's the 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 students that are. Nat naturally push push themselves are doing really well. It's the as a teacher, it's those people who need the extra help. That's what I fear is lost with the Zoom teaching, and I would imagine that's pretty universal. Um, so I I think it's what's what's weird about it is I feel that students already inclined to succeed are going to succeed even to a greater success, hmm. and and that's. As a teacher, that's kind of what makes me go, well, 
this is why we can't do this all the time. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, not only does it make logical sense, but also it makes sort of specific sense in the world of theater training, right? That there's a sort of performative element that people who are naturally gifted or people who have had more experience or already have more training are going to be able to succeed in sort of a televised universe of Zoom. But what it just immediately makes me think is, oh my God, there, you know, how many other students are, you know, sort of finding themselves lost in the background and not, be, you know, that that stuff is, that's really sad. And it makes me, yeah. you're right. I think, you know, it's, it's perhaps the only option for a stopgap measure during this time, but um, particularly... You know, I, you, my brother is a is a professor at Oregon right. State, and he teaches in the nuclear engineering department. And uh, <clears throat> he does not need to see whether he does not need to see the faces of his students in order to know that they have accomplished complicated mathematical equations, right? right. Like that, there is just a sort of teaching differentiation between yeah. something that's mathematical or engineering, although that's a ridiculously broad overstatement. But in the world of theater, you know, it, it, it's, it strikes me as being extraordinarily difficult to train people to do something online which is intended to be performed live, right? Yeah. Like <clears throat> you're, you're teaching people v- virtually how to do stuff that's supposed to be done in an intimate sort of yeah. co-present art form. It seems weird. Yeah. yeah it, I don't it, think I'm going to take your class. Sorry. No. Is that okay? <laughs> that, that's fine. That's okay. fine. I don't think you'd take notes from me well anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I would not. Uh, I would not yeah. take notes from you well, Andrew. Yeah, that the, is true. And, yeah. <laughs> that the the other thing I think is is interesting just because of the type of class and the type of connection as a theater professor you have different than like yeah, <laughs> an engineering uh professor or an architecture professor is and you know, we've talked about this, acting makes normal good actors are normal people who, when they act, become crazy people. Right. Just by what is expected and what you have to tap into and what you have to let out, right? And so one of the interesting things is the amount of students that have reached out uh, emotionally that I I doubt your brother has had to deal with and, (laughs) and, and really shared, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm going through, and that element, uh, and the deans have been very good about talking about the, you know, because as you get older, you kind of forget how everything was the biggest deal in the world when you were 19. And uh, how important, you know, because for us, we've lived through 9-11 and all, all sorts of terrible things. But when you're 19, this is, this is probably the first big deal that they've had to deal with, where right. life changed diametrically. And, um, you know, and how that shakes you. Because you, I think about when I was 19 and if a girl just looked at me the wrong way, I'd be like crushed for 48 hours. <laughs> right, my life is over. <laughs> she didn't yeah. smile. Um, so yeah, so it's it's been interesting what, in addition to just the teaching portion, something that I don't, I don't know that I feel compelled to do, but just because I, I, this may sound weird coming from me, Scott, but that I care. <laughs> Wait, what? 
I don't. Uh, yeah, exactly. I don't. I'm not really know. sure I understand what what you mean by that. Like like yeah, like, I, like human caring. Yeah, I don't. I'm not proud of it. But it <laughs> <laughs> slipped in. So, but yeah. So it's 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 been good. It. I think I've really enjoyed. Um, oh, you'll get a crack out of this. Uh, so I've really enjoyed doing it once uh, because it made me realize how much I love styles in general. Hmm. Also, as I've gone through and, and, you know, one of the things I do is I make them read a text and then watch a production of it. Um, so I had them uh, watch the production of The Rivals um, which is from, I think it's from the late seventies. Yeah. Oh yeah. I know that version. Yeah. And it's, and it's real fun. And, uh, and uh, now I'm going to try to get everyone I know who is an artistic director to do it. So you should do the rivals. Okay. And, uh, and I was like going through it and then I was watching it and the rivals is in the Georgian style. And I got about 10 minutes in and I stopped it and I said, Katie, I've realized that Georgian acting is my favorite because that is how I live my life. <laughs> I, I, I would agree. You have a you have a natural inclination towards the humorously stilted. Uh, yeah. If that if that yeah. if that makes any sense. And uh, and always always up always turned up not to a hundred but to but just about ninety eight all kind of all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, that's hilarious. Uh, so what, what, what is going to happen? I mean, are you guys expecting, is it your understanding that you will be able to be back in the classroom sometime soon? Are you going to be able to be back at the vault theater in Hillsborough with bag and baggage soon? I mean, what is, what is your sort of immediate and near future look like as a teacher and a performer? Yeah. So the, the first thing I heard that was kind of uh, the unwinding of things was Oregon State did come out last week and they did say we are looking into bringing some of the later portion of the summer into uh, back to full, basically over the course of the, the summer unwinding so that the last, I think it's a four week term will be in person with socially distancing, of course, but it'll, but everyone will be on campus as normal with the intention that fall term will happen in person. Um, so that's the first thing I've heard there. Uh, Bag and Baggage tried as long as we could to not cancel uh, Fallen Angels, but, but we finally did that. And currently, uh, the plan, as far as I know, is to start rehearsals for the first show of next season um, sometime in August for uh, a, hopefully a September curtain. Right. <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> that is basically what we just announced to yeah. the patrons of Sun Valley and Company of Fools today. We had originally planned, I think, you know, you and I were talking about it. We had three shows in rotating rep planned I... for June and July. And uh, we announced this morning, the 5th of May, that uh, that we are canceling our summer rep completely and yeah. that we are spreading those three shows out over the rest of the year, starting oh. in, in early September. So, um, yeah, I mean, do you, uh, what's your gut? Does your gut tell you that's long enough to wait? I, I think as long as a theater company can survive without needing a full house. There's the rub. Yeah, and... And if it is such, 
it is such uh, a thing where, you know, if 50 seats can do it, um, then I think we're, I think that sort of performance will be going on, whether or not that's feasible or that makes sense other than just doing art for art's sake. Uh, one of the things we talked about uh, for Fallen Angels before we canceled was pushing it back as much as we can and assuming there would be a 50 seat cap, just go from our normal four performances a week and just do Broadway it and do eight. So mm. enough seats. Um, but I don't know how, you know, that bag and baggage is not an equity company as, as you know. And, and so I don't know how feasible that is for a company such as Company of Fools, um, you know, and I don't know what that would do to the actors. <laughs> Um, especially for bag and baggage in the Portland area because they have full-time jobs. Right. Outside of, uh, well, hopefully they have full-time jobs outside of um, their performance at bag and baggage. So I, I don't know, you know, Scott, I, I, there, I've, heard, I've heard talk about some bigger companies pushing back to November. I know that uh, OSF down in Ashland is, I think the last thing I heard was September. Um, and just doing seven shows over the last four months. Mm -hmm. um, so it, that sort of seems what people are thinking. Um, I'm a little more positive for people on the West Coast um, than I am on the East Coast. Like if I was a theater on the East Coast, I would, just because of the density of people and how things seem to be handled a little more silly uh thinking it probably won't be till next year i yeah i'm really bummed because i think uh a lot of theaters are just gonna go away i mean a lot of things are just gonna go away yeah um so yeah, yeah. it's weird in the in the last couple of weeks i mean i've been doing these podcasts you know for for five or six weeks now and i've talked to just this, the, the most amazing range of people from all over sure. the country and the one thing we're i'm kind of consistently hearing is that uh one, you know, on the spectrum of of nonprofit theaters in the United States, there's the sort of small, scrappy, um, you know, under a million, maybe under six hundred thousand, yeah. uh, and they're going to be okay because they can yeah. sort of absorb the loss, right? right. Um, their their budgets aren't so massive that they can't be nimble and flexible about mm -hmm. changing things around. Um, and then there's the sort of mid-sized folks, the million to three million-ish, uh, who are in a world of hurt, right? Like this right. is this is a is a potentially career-ending pandemic for that mid-sized theater range. And then there are the big dogs, right? The yeah. <clears throat> the sort of huge Broadway lort houses and the big regional theaters and ma major urban areas. And they're going to be, for the most part, many of them are going to be fine because they have the donor base and endowments and all that kind of stuff that will at least allow them to survive, even though they may have to do a lot of furloughing and laying off. But but my response to that is that that, that feels like a terrifying change to the landscape of American theater, right? right? That you just basically have these giant institutions made predominantly in urban areas yeah. that are 25 million, 35 million, $45 million. And then you have a smaller, significantly smaller group of, of sort of scrappy, small budget theaters um, <clears throat> who, who aren't, you know, aren't paying living wage, aren't equity houses. Um, and that sort of middle range is the, is the range that is, is most likely going to feel the impact. 
Yeah. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I mean, that that just, yeah, that does feel right because, you know, you, you get to that mid-size range and you have expectations, just what you're saying, of, of wages, and you can't run that size of theater with two people. You, you can run, uh, like, for example, bag and baggage. You can run bag and baggage with, you know, people. Small at, staff, a small, tightly yeah. knit staff. Yeah. 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 Or, or and, and it also just depends on how the theaters are set up, how financially conscious they are, you know, how, how much they depend on ticket sales. Because, I mean, you know this way better than I do, but some companies, 20% of their budget comes from ticket sales. Some companies, 60% of their budget comes from ticket sales. Um, and all over the place, right? And Or like we were talking about the Great American Melodrama, 100% of their budget comes from ticket sales. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and what, what do you, and they just built a giant building, you know, and without, uh, so yeah, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. You know, it, does it become a thing where smaller companies kind of bond together? I mean, there was a bit of this with ART where a bunch of smaller companies are run kind of under the auspices of auspice of, uh, ART's kind of budget, but I, I just don't know. It, and then I, I have a bunch of friends who are technicians on giant tours, um, you know, on the Les Mis tour, on the Stomp tour, and what, when can those come back? Because there's not only do they, are they reliant on filling 1,200 or 3,500 seat houses, there's all the travel involved. Right. <clears throat> you know, a theater you can kind of put into a bubble, but... Uh, a touring show where, uh, I mean, that's where most theater actors actually make money and technicians as well, basically those type of shows. So, and if those disappear for two years, what does that mean? So yeah, it's going to be a lot of, um, going to be a lot of, uh, yeah, it's just going to change the world because I can tell you from doing that reading online last weekend that is not theater for me and that is not what i want to do <laughs> so what which can i know what you're referring to but our listeners oh, yeah. all across the world are not sure what you're talking about yes Crazy well <laughs> yes well both of you i did it <laughs> it's, my, it's uh, my mom and my husband that's it they're the only two people who listen but that's all you need scott is two. two just the two yeah my wife has not she's like i'm not listening nope. <laughs> Um, she'll listen for me she misses me she will she will um so i did a stay or whatever it's a zoom reading of uh, a show called little red robin hood which is a children's show that was uh rewritten uh for zoom and i did it and you know it was fun i loved i got to act i got to goof off uh you know read some lines uh it's a witty little children's show and um with some old friends of mine but the thing that I finished with, I said, that would have been just as much fun if it would have just been the cast reading it over Zoom. I, I, it was not theater in that I had no relation to the 60 or so people who watched it on Facebook Live. And that doesn't mean it's not worthy art or it was a waste of time. It's just for me, it is inherently not theater. Doesn't make it bad, it's just, not why I, why I as a performer continue to perform, drive two hours to do all those sorts of things. 
and I think, I think it's necessary for now, and you and I talked about this as the pandemic was going, one of the things I think that's going to be hard for actors is we lived in a time, actors and production companies, is we lived in a time of plenty for 10 or 12 years after 2008, where money was flowing, people were getting richer, uh, more grants, more donors, and we could just perform whatever we want as long as it fit our niche and we did not, we answered to our audiences, but if we said this was good, they tend to go along with it. Mm -hmm. And I think art is going to change for the next couple of years in that our job now as artists are to serve the public in a different way. Whereas before it was to expand, push, challenge them as people, humans, their ideas, their notions. And I think now is to make them realize as much as we can say that it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And even, even though we don't know that that's true, but I think that's what people are going to want. People aren't going to want to watch, uh, you know, time in of Athens. They're going to want to see. Well, I do have an adaptation of Time In that is, that is hilarious. It's, uh, <laughs> it's very, very funny uh, based on. Yeah, no, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I don't, yeah, although, yeah. no, I'm thinking I, about it. I might have one done by the end of the day. I think it's interesting because a lot of the a lot of the conversations I'm having with other artistic directors and, and with particularly with artists of color and with playwrights mm -hmm. of color is this sort of there's this kind of weird worry in the back of our minds that this is going to mean most theaters that survive and that return to producing houses, right? That return to having live audiences in theaters. Yeah. Going to have this sort of swing back to deeply conservative. And I don't necessarily mean politically conservative. Yeah. I mean just sort of like non-risky, not risk-taking yeah. theater. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's probably true, but I don't necessarily know that that means that we have to, it's, it's not going to be all Neil Simon all the time, right? It, yeah. it could be new work. It could be new work that's, that is, that is by diverse voice, voices of different playwrights that features yeah. diverse uh, artists, but that is broadly focused on hope for the future, right? Yeah. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't need to be the rivals all the time. Although I think right. it'd be a great show to do. Uh, yeah. But my hope is that people will not sort of kind of back away from the strides that the American nonprofit theater has been making in the last few years to highlight diverse voices, to ensure that that you know underrepresented communities are seen on stages. Mm -hmm. We we just may need to back a little bit off from. The devastatingly tragic right <laughs> like yeah well and and it's i think we can do the same things it just has to be in a different way and 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 it's kind of going back from i kind of put it this way so uh bag and baggage did a production of much ado about nothing where the genders were all fluid and very forward uh in, in that department and it was very that that was the twist on that production that that was every the genders were fluid and this was right out and that was the first thing probably I would say eighty percent of people took away from that production was whether they liked it or not they said this was what this is memorable about this production and I think it's going back to we have to be a little sneakier 
where we just infuse that belief and we infuse the all the same goals and ideas, but we just put it in a different wrapper. If that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, I think yes, I it certainly makes sense to me. I think for you know for a while there, uh, theater companies w- were able to sort of push and yep. mm-hmm. be provocative in a way that um, that you know sort of rolled the dice and was a little bit more risk taking with their bottom line, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as I think we move forward, certainly as a producer and as an artistic director, you know, the decisions that we are making about Company of Fool season are about high quality and likely to draw lots of audiences, right? They, they, we, we have been less interested in the provocative political conversation starting, although certainly those are elements of what we're doing. The priority for us in the coming season is bums and seats, make you know sort of give give the people what they want do it in a thoughtful and progressive and social justice focused way yeah um, but the priority is about like we just have to make sure people come and buy tickets right yeah. um yeah so yeah which is i i mean you know i think in some ways it might be kind of good for that to be the case i mean i do think you're right we have to serve the needs of a broad audience who are afraid and concerned and worried and whose whose worlds and lives have also been shaken to the core, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. So we have to make sure that we wrap them in in the warm familiarity and love of live theater, um, while at the same time being super thoughtful about whether or not we can survive financially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, it, we just have to be. It, what's fun about it, if I'm going to be positive about it, is we have to be more artful and deft and more creative in the way we pursue those same objectives. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I guess that means I'm out of a job because I think artful and deft <laughs> are not two words anyone would ever just oh, to describe me. Me too, Captain Georgian. So Yes, yes, my lord, <laughs> the Georgian actor. Uh, well, it is always a pleasure to talk with you, Andrew Beck. Yes. Uh, well, not always. Most of the time, it is a pleasure <laughs> talking to you, Andrew Beck. My name is Scott Palmer. I'm producing artistic director of Company of Fools, and you've been listening to Foolish Voices. In this episode, we were talking with my good friend, Andrew Beck, who holds an MFA in acting from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. He is a five-year member of Bag and Baggage's resident acting company, performing with that company in a gazillion roles. He is also a member of No Filter Improv and teaches acting at Oregon State University. If you have enjoyed my conversation with Andrew Beck, please consider supporting Company of Fools by making a donation in any amount via our podcast platform or online at our parent organization that is the Sun Valley Museum of Art on their website. It is S-V-M-O-A dot org. Uh, Andrew, do you have a, a theater company or an organization you would like our listeners to donate to? Yeah, certainly. Uh, bag and baggage dot org. So it's B-A-G-N-B-A-G-G-A-G-E dot org. And I will put a link to that website in the description of the podcast. Um, hey, will you say hi to Katie for me? I will do it maybe once. T- tell her that when the next time you fall asleep on the couch, she can call me and we can have cocktails on Zoom. <laughs> That sounds good. Yeah, we should do that. Yeah, we should. We definitely should. All right. Will you please take care? And um, uh, I know I don't. I don't tell you this enough, but I miss you. Yeah, I miss you too. And right. you, I'll, and you, and you say hi to Brian. I will. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.